1: Well, hello, this is Michael Volkoff, and this is episode 178 of Corruption, Crime, and Compliance. Our episode today is an interview, which will be conducted by Elizabeth Slim uh, from our law firm. And it's an interview concerning the Corporate Transparency Act, the Beneficial Ownership uh, Reform Act, uh, with Scott Graytech from Transparency International USA and Erica Hanachak from the Fact Coalition, uh, it's an interesting interview, and uh, they review the Corporate Transparency Act. Liz Lim, as you know, works at the Volkoff Law Group and is a uh, AML, uh, BSA uh, officer, former BSA officer and expert, uh, and provides consulting services. Anyway, so I thought a discussion among the three of them about the new act and the implications would be pretty interesting. It's a big development in terms of beneficial ownership uh, compliance in the United States, so, uh, before we get to that, let's hear a word from our sponsor, Steel Compliance Solutions.
2: Steel Compliance is the global leader in compliance and ethics management. Steel's compliance and ethics platform is comprehensive, robust, and easy to use to promote a company's culture of compliance. Steel partners with the world's largest, most respected companies to deliver compliance products and services that help organizations embrace a culture of compliance while protecting their brand. Building an ethical culture is a complex undertaking that requires a detailed understanding of the global compliance environment, considerable time, and specialized expertise. Steel's end-to-end ethics and compliance platform is designed to provide compliance officers with the solutions they need to proactively address changing regulatory and reputational risks. Steele's Ethics and Compliance Automated Platform offers critical functions designed to promote a speak-up culture to advance employee engagement, reporting, and incident management, investigate promptly and fairly potential incidents to ensure compliance with your organization's code of conduct and applicable laws and regulations, including anti-corruption, anti-money laundering, anti-trust, sanctions, cybersecurity, and data privacy, Manage your organization's compliance policies and procedures to ensure that policies are updated and disseminated effectively so that employees understand your organization's compliance requirements. Educate and engage your organization to promote understanding and how your compliance program applies to day-to-day operations. And evaluate and monitor your organization's business partners, vendors, suppliers, and customers to mitigate risk and ensure adherence to your organization's ethics and compliance requirements. To learn more about Steele's Compliance Solutions, please contact us at email steelglobal.com or call 415-692-5000.
3: Welcome, everyone. I'm Elizabeth Slim, Senior Consultant at the Volkoff Law Group. I'm very pleased today to welcome Scott Graytak, Advocacy Director at Transparency International, and Erica Hanachak, Government Affairs Director for the Financial Accountability and Corporate Transparency, or FACT, Coalition, for a discussion of recent anti-money laundering reform enacted early this year. Today, we want to discuss the Corporate Transparency Act, which was enacted as part of the Anti-Money Laundering Act, contained in the National Defense Authorization Act. Now, that's a lot of acts to share. So, let me introduce Scott gray who is the Advocacy Director for the U.S. Office of Transparency International, where he manages the office's legislative and regulatory work on illicit finance, political integrity, and whistleblower protections, as well as overseeing the Transparency International U.S. Anti-Corruption Legislation Lab. Graytech is an anti-corruption attorney who has helped lead legislative, legal and ballot measure initiatives on campaign finance, voting, foreign influence, ethics and fair representation. He chairs the legislative committee of the ACLU of DC. So welcome Scott. And next good to be with we you. have Oh good. <laughs> Next we have Erica Hanacek who is the Government Affairs Director at the Financial Accountability and Corporate Transparency or FACT Coalition. The FACT Coalition is a nonpartisan alliance of more than 100 state, national, and international organizations, promoting policies to combat the harmful impacts of corrupt financial practices, and before joining FACT, Erica spent years working with US-based nonprofits focused on advancing human rights, accountability, and the rule of law. Welcome, Erica. Great to be with you. Thank you both for taking the time to share your insights. So, Scott, I'll let you kick off this session. So, let's begin talking about the Corporate Transparency Act. So, what is it and why is it important?
4: So it turns out that there's one thing that some of the worst people in the world do, and I'm talking about terrorists, drug cartels, foreign corrupt leaders, human traffickers, fraudsters, opioid peddlers, a long list. One thing they all have in common, and that's that they use anonymous shell companies to do their dirty work. The good news is that Congress, supported by one of, I think, the broadest political coalitions in modern history, just passed a law that will essentially ban anonymous shell companies so going forward it will be illegal for someone to register a company in the United States without disclosing who actually owns or controls that company so at the 30,000 foot level the Corporate Transparency Act says that when somebody forms a company they have to disclose the names, the addresses the birthdays and a personal identifying information like a driver's license or passport number for all of the beneficial owners of that company. Uh, That information is then sent on to the Treasury Department, where it's stored in a secure, confidential, private database that law enforcement can use if and when they find a company that is involved in a crime and they need to find out who's actually behind it.
3: That's great. Now, I understand it's 25% and more. Is that all that FinCEN would like reported on? Can they go, can, can, is the requirement to, can it go less or is it 25% um, equity interest and above?
4: Yeah, so we can get into the weeds, but basically the act defines mm-hmm. an official owner as any individual, whether this is direct ownership, indirectly, through any sort of arrangement, contract, relationship, Uh, owns 25% or more of that company, they have an ownership interest of 25% or more, or they exercise substantial control over the company. That is what a beneficial owner is.
3: Very good. So when do we think this will take effect?
4: Uh, So the law was passed on New Year's Day. And in the text of it, it requires uh, the Treasury Department, in particular, the Financial Crimes Enforcement Network, or FINCEN, to adopt rules in one year. So essentially this time next year uh, is when we have the final rules on the books.
3: And then we'll companies then have additional time to prepare, or should they be preparing now uh, for when the final ruling is is in effect next year?
4: Yep, Uh, and we we can kind of get into the timeline of where things go from here, but big picture, uh, once those rules are on the books, so beginning in January 2022, anytime that a new company is formed, they will have to go ahead and report their beneficial ownership information at the time that company is formed, If you're an existing company, you're gonna have two years, so essentially January 2024, to report your information. And at any time, whether it's starting next year or 10 years from now, any time that a company's beneficial ownership information changes, they have one year to update that information uh, to FinCEN.
3: Very good, so uh, I, I think, you know, the challenge then is informing and educating uh, companies regarding this new registration. Do you think the states may, um, and I'm just talking out loud here, do you think the states now will have to enforce that when uh, new companies want to register within the 50 states?
4: Yeah, so there's actually some really good language in the law that will require you know, companies in the United States on a state level, they're formed at a state level, and they're done through a state secretary of state office uh, or for Indian tribes at the, you know, corollary, uh, which performs the functions of a state secretary of state. And those folks will actually be required to post notices about this law going into effect. They're going to have to put out guidance and information. I think there's even a requirement that they put it on their websites that this law will be going into effect and sort of walking through Um, the entities that will be regulated by the Corporate Transparency Act to make sure that they're able to comply on time.
3: Great. Now, Erica, with your background, so explain why the Corporate Transparency Act was needed.
5: Absolutely. So if you think about the scope of the international economy, you think about how much uh, money laundering is actually happening uh, on an annual level. I mean, it's something to the level of uh, two trillion dollars a year per the U.N. office of, on drugs and crime, about five percent of the world's GDP. Uh, it's really essential that one of the biggest economies in the world, a.k.a. the U.S., has laws that help combat money laundering and have a, introduce a greater idea and transparency around who owns the companies used using that process. So, um, for instance, uh, in the United States, it takes less information right now, you know, pre law. Um, to start a company than it does to get a library card Um, that's in all 50 states. And uh, the World Bank did an estimate, too, that the United States incorporated more anonymous entities than the next 41 um, havens combined. So truly a serious problem. And there are direct through lines when it comes to national security and law enforcement uh, and more. And so especially on the national security front, take, for instance, Iran. I mean, just a few years ago, the government of Iran found safe haven, not in some Caribbean island, but on the island of Manhattan, where it used an anonymous company to buy a slice of a five hundred million dollar property to launder funds and evade sanctions for nuclear programs and support of terrorism. I mean, Department of Justice prosecuted that. Likewise, there's a through line with China. It's no secret that Chinese officials have relied on anonymous companies to offshore immense wealth. I think when the Panama Papers came out, it was something like 40,000 Chinese nationals were implicated in using the firm under question, uh, including Xi Jinping's brother-in-law. Um, and these corporate entities have other you know, national security risks um, in the Chinese file, including IP theft, corporate espionage, grand corruption. Um, There's actually a recent report that came out alleging that the Chinese paramilitary group, the XPCC, which was sanctioned last year for leading human rights abuses against China's Muslim minority, um, that they used at least 2000 United United States and non-Michelle companies to launder their funds. So there's a huge implication here.
3: It's very fascinating that, you know, (laughs) the U.S. of all places has been known now as they, they rank number two. In uh, allowing shell companies to be established, which is you know a black stain on us, but thank God for the Cor- Corporate Transparency Act, which will now rein that in and help identify who those beneficial owners are, and hopefully eliminate shell companies being open. I can share with you, coming from a, a banking background that anytime LLCs were open, it was so difficult to drill down to find out who the beneficial owners are. Because you have an LLC managed by another LLC managed by another LLC, it just goes down five levels. It's it's amazing how that's allowed.
5: Absolutely, and I would say, you know, one of the um, most ardent supporters of uh, of this legislation, which we can go into the broader coalition a little bit later, but was particularly the the banking industry and law enforcement, who understand that to um, you know keep Americans safe and protect uh, the U.S. economy, you have to follow the money for financial crimes, and this is a huge tool in being able to do that. And you mentioned to um, the U.S. place in the world; I mean, it is truly incredible that we're uh, the second most secretive financial jurisdiction. But now we're finally coming out and following some of our European partners in passing this law. And I think that with Congress and, um, you know, basically two administrations involved on this, this will be a huge step forward in encouraging uh, greater beneficial ownership transparency internationally, encouraging our international allies to take the same step.
3: Great. Uh, Scott, I know that you also wanted to share information regarding the anti-corruption intersections. So tell us about that.
4: Yeah, so I think it's important to get a sense of how corruption works um, in too many other parts of the world. In the U.S., you know, we tend to think of corruption as as either outright bribery, um, you know, a quid pro quo and this for that. You give money to a politician and they, they give you some kind of favorable treatment or official action in exchange. Um, or even more broadly, you think about um, folks spending an inordinate amount of money on an election and that carrying outsized influence with that politician, sort of the software corruption. But in a lot of parts of the world, it is is really politicians outright stealing money from their citizens. And this is a huge amount of money that we're talking about. The UN puts it at over three and a half trillion dollars, about a trillion in direct bribes, two and a half uh, trillion of that is just stolen outright from public treasuries, public coffers. Um, this money, we know, is lost forever, and um, you know maybe we get back a tiny, tiny fraction of it. Uh, but one way that this money disappears is that the corrupt leaders who take it, the kleptocrats, um, will try and get it outside their country as quickly as possible. And so they want to move it to a place where it's relatively safe, where they can launder the money, take it from cash or whatever form it's in, and turn it into some kind of asset in another country uh, that then they can park it there and they can grow it um, and get away scot-free so you know in the united states uh, what these folks like to do is use professional middlemen we call them the enablers or the gatekeepers to the u.s financial system they rely on these folks to set up anonymous shell companies and be able to move that stolen money into the u.s financial system and you know maybe they go and buy high-end real estate park their money there watch it grow and because we never know who the actual owners are behind those anonymous companies law enforcement isn't able to track that money the u.s government isn't able to get that stolen money back to the people it was stolen from Um, you know i know on this podcast y'all have covered the imdb scandal in malaysia at great length This is where the former prime minister stole, you know, four and a half billion dollars. A former Peruvian president stole more than two billion dollars in the 90s. We know Ferdinand Marcos in the Philippines over like a 20 year period stole five to ten billion dollars from his people. Uh, You know, one mechanism for them to be able to wash this money and to get away with these crimes is to be able to use anonymous shell companies to get it into the U.S.'s financial system.
3: That's so true. In fact, um, Dansk Bank in Estonia was cited for uh, allowing so many shell companies to be established by Russian nationals. And they laundered billions of dollars through that that went undetected because of lack of due diligence. So there was that Russian involvement identified there and Dansk Bank there. There's currently under investigation, I think, for criminal Activity as well as fine millions and millions of dollars for allowing this to happen.
4: Yeah. And I mean, the you know, we can there's obviously a lot of implications for the global economy and how corrupt mm-hmm. foreign leaders use these companies. But they're also used by folks here in the United States. I mean, we know that Paul Manafort laundered some $75 million through anonymous shell companies, money that was mm-hmm. given. By corrupt Ukrainian officials, we know that a, a Malaysian businessman got money to a pro-Obama super PAC to spend on the 2012 election through an anonymous shell company, and then, notoriously recently, we know that Lev Pranas and Igor Fruman used uh, a Russian official's money to try and get it into a pro-Trump super PAC. So these have, you know, corruption implications, yes, for folks in developing countries around the world, but also they impact the US's financial system and the US's political system.
3: Oh, absolutely. Uh, Erica, I know that you can share information on this too, but other than, you know, go, you know, we have corrupt officials, government officials utilizing, you know, shell companies. We've got organized crime too that is utilizing it to park their illicit funds and launder it through these shell companies.
5: Absolutely. I mean, these anonymous shell companies are essentially getaway vehicles for these criminal networks, and it really obscures uh, not only the the proceeds of these funds, but how different criminal networks are linked together and who's operating with whom. And um, again, this is one of the major reasons why law enforcement has been so supportive of this type of reform. Uh, in order to follow the money, you know, it's incredibly important to understand. For instance, if you're looking at um, human trafficking, um, illicit massage parlors are one of the main um, tools that human traffickers use to to move people illicitly through the economy and to you know really subject um, you know women, men, and children to some of the worst crimes out there. And and of those businesses, there was recently a report that of the 6,000 illicit, illicit massage parlors out there, only 28% had a person listed on the business registration records. Um, likewise, when it comes to the opioid epidemic um you know we're really facing a tough time in trying to counter uh, the delivery of opioids and fentanyl into the United States, um, both domestically, uh, just in terms of how, that, uh, how those goods are moved, but also internationally. I mean, I think there are a lot of Chinese firms that have relied on um, mailing systems to, to ship fentanyl to the United States, and it's impossible to really follow up on the money either from one of those mail deals or street-level deals to the supplier without being able to understand how those financial networks move through. And and then also we see it in the use of, um, you know, counterfeit and illicit trade. So we've seen some support from uh, major corporations in this because there are they're looking for additional ways to protect American consumers and maintain the integrity of U.S. brands. Anonymous companies have been used for counterfeit, um, especially if you think about prescription drugs and luxury goods uh, to have immense networks of illicit proceeds. um, And again, just threatening the integrity of the US economy. I mean, I think the OECD uh, and European Union Intellectual Property Office have estimated that the value of imported counterfeit goods worldwide was something like 500 billion, about like 3% of world trade. So it's a huge problem. And I think that um, being able to introduce some some transparency in these corporations will uh, help combat uh, these illicit criminal networks.
3: Oh, absolutely. I highly agree with that. So, Erica, tell us, you know, how did the FAT coalition help support pushing this bill through the legislation?
5: So it's been more than a decade long effort uh, many faces and names associated with it. It's really been a long haul. But I think, you know, one of the testaments to seeing this legislation passed on January 1st, is uh, just the how it got passed in such a politically polarized climate in Washington these days. Uh, it, it really has attracted truly bipartisan support uh, and it's unprecedented how many people have turned out to back this legislation and see this major uh, anti-money laundering reform passed. And it's a rare bird. I mean, it's something that has the en- endorsement of the outgoing Trump administration and Biden administration alike, and has unified interests as diverse as Dow Chemical and Friends of the Earth. So. You know, it started out, I think, initially as a um, you know really focus on the anti-corruption piece, uh, corporate abuse uh, 10 years ago, but has widened out to attract many interests in terms of national security, law enforcement and the like. So just to run through um, some of the people that have weighed in on this le- legislation, helped make it better um, and helped build out this coalition of support. Um, you know, we've seen level at the uh, support at the state level. So, for instance, 42 states' attorneys general have come out um, to back it as a necessary tool for investigations, along with sheriffs, district attorneys, uh, federal prosecutors. I mentioned the financial services industry earlier. So, big banks, credit unions, and others have become an unlikely advocate, uh, just in the interest of improving their own access to information for due diligence requirements and standardizing regs. Uh, And then I mentioned business also. I mean, not only did the U.S. Council for International Business, which has hundreds of corporate members, uh, join out of an interest to counter illicit trade, but the U.S. Chamber of Commerce. I mean, that's been a 10 year opponent of this legislation. They came out not only as neutral, but to support the legislation, really recognizing its security implications and uh, and recognizing also the efforts by legislators in the House and Senate to minimize any burden on business. So. You know, I I like to joke, if there's any doubt, we even have the Delaware Secretary of State on board. (laughs) Um, He's actually been one (laughs) of the most uh, ardent supporters of reform. So it's really this broad coalition support that gives us the confidence that we can come out with a strong rule going into implementation and uh, that January 2022 timeline.
3: Well, thank you for your efforts, and this has been a long time coming, so uh, I can tell you uh, the financial industry is very pleased to see that this has passed, because it put a lot of burden on the financial industry to try to obtain this information and verify it. But knowing that FinCEN will be the central registry now is an immense relief, I think, to the financial industry, but it's nice to know that it's collected. Um, I, I know that Scott, you you originally tried to, you originally shared some information uh, regarding CTA and the um, the details about it. but you know let's continue. You shared how the beneficial ownership database will operate. Um, but exactly you know who is exempt as well? I don't think we really covered that if you want to
4: go into it. Yeah, so big picture um, under the Corporate Transparency Act. Any company, any limited liability corporation or a similar entity, um, when it is formally created, when that paperwork is filed, at say a Secretary of State's office, um, they are what is considered a reporting company. And under the law, a reporting company has to submit uh, information to FinCEN that names every beneficial owner of the company and if the company was set up Uh, by somebody else, like a corporate formation agent or an attorney, uh, that applicant's beneficial ownership information, that person's information also has to be submitted. Um, And again, this is a very quick 30-second requirement. You know, it's, it's the full legal name of each beneficial owner. It's their date of birth. It's a current residential or business address. And then it's, you know, a driver's license or a passport number. Um, it also, by the way, applies to when a foreign company is registered to do business in the United States, they also have to file uh, this report that identifies their beneficial owners. Um, you know, we talked about if the, the timeframes for this. Once the law is in effect, every company that's formed at, at the time of formation will have to report this information. For existing companies, they have a two-year grace period uh, once those laws go into effect, so effectively January 2024. Um, it's important that this law has teeth behind it. If um, a formation agent or a company reports false information or just doesn't report information under the timeline, uh, then they can face up to two years in prison. It's a $500 a day fine for that company, up to $10,000. Um, so, you know, we're very proud that the, the definition of beneficial owner. And the scope of this uh, remained airtight and intact throughout the bill, and we think that's one of its strongest features. But you asked about exemptions. There are, you know, I think 23 different categories of exemptions to the bill. Very reasonably, because you know this applies otherwise to literally every corporate entity in the United States. We're talking about tens of millions of, of corporations that are formed in the United States. So, understandably you know, this law goes after money laundering, it goes after, uh, you know, opportunities for terrorist financing and corruption or whatnot. So there are huge swaths of like the corporate world out there that um, don't pose those kind of significant risks. So writ large, um, if a corporate entity is otherwise heavily regulated, think about banks, nonprofits, you know, large companies Walmart etc they are exempt from this requirement or if they're already reporting their beneficial ownership somewhere else like on an SEC form or to a state regulatory body if that information is already captured we're not trying to you know there's no duplicative uh, effort here to make them report it here as well.
3: Great and what I did like to see is that they did Added enforcement as well, so there are penalties too if they if companies do not comply. So hopefully we'll see how that gets you know um, how that's enforced, but at least like you said, there's teeth added to it. Now I know that the focus um, of this discussion is the Corporate Transparency Act but the entire Anti-Money Laundering Act of 2020 um, entails other things. If you wanna share on a high level some of the other new uh, reforms that are uh, covered in this act.
4: Yeah, there's some really exciting pieces um, that update our broader anti-money laundering legal uh, regime here. I'll talk about three really quickly. So one really important one is if uh, whistleblowers report uh, violations of U.S. money laundering laws, that this law will give them greater protections. You know, if they report something that is sanctioned by the U.S. government and that sanction gets over a million dollars um, as, you know, seized assets or whatnot, fall out from that, and that whistleblower will be entitled to up to a third or up to 30 percent of the money that's recovered. So it, you know, really substantiates an existing whistleblower program and creates strong incentives for folks to be able to call out Uh, misconduct and criminal activity when they see it secondly now um, Treasury and the DOJ will have the power to subpoena records um, from foreign correspondent banks that maintain accounts with US banks Uh, this is important because typically you know they would be able to request and through a federal court get a foreign correspondent bank to turn over records only related to a correspondent account you know, that is at a US bank. But now they're able to say, hey, we want to have access to any records that is held by a foreign correspondent banks, you know, regardless of whether it has to do with that US account. So it really broadens the authority of the US government to go after what we know is a huge way for you know, illegally obtained money, and laundered money to move throughout the global banking system is done through foreign correspondent banks. So this this gives the US government more power and authority to do that. And then lastly, I think the the law just kind of understands the importance of building out a broader um, financial intelligence infrastructure. Uh, So it requires better information sharing between the treasury department and FinCEN and the folks that are regulated, the banks, and with law enforcement. Uh, there are requirements that FinCEN work to cultivate uh, better information from the banks and what the banks are collecting from their clients to be able to use that information more effectively in partnering with law enforcement, and really to just bring into fruition a sense that these are obligations that are shared across the regulators, the regulatees, the force, the, the folks. Um, you know, who are on the ground and closest to this potential misconduct. And it helps bring everybody into alignment and says that the goals of anti-money laundering laws can be achieved if everybody's working together, sharing information, using best practices, etc.
3: I really do like the fact that, you know, they're going to emphasize information sharing. Again, coming from the financial industry, it was always a one way method of sharing information because financial industry is tasked with doing all the various reportings, whether it's the currency transaction report or the suspicious activity report, but we never knew what happened with that information once it was submitted to FinCEN. Because, you know, from our perspective, it's like we'd like to know, did it result in an investigation? What are the red flags that law enforcement is seeing that, you know, should be passed on to the financial industry as well so they know how to detect it and look out for it as well? Because they're in the blind. They're just knowing that if it looks suspicious, report it.
4: Yeah, I mean, exactly. Think about suspicious activity reports. Millions of these are filed by U.S. banks a year. And now under this law, there will be it's there's an onus on FinCEN on the U.S. government to talk about what information coming from banks through SARS is most effective to accomplish FinCEN's purposes. What do they you know, what are trends that they see from SARS filings that can help FinCEN accomplish its goals? There's even a provision in the law. That requires FinCEN to create what's called domestic liaisons. Uh, uh, These are folks whose entire jobs, it's going to be, it's about a half a dozen folks who are going to be brought on, their entire job is going to be interacting with financial institutions in order to not only help implement this law, um, but to build that sort of collaboration and consistent communication, best practice sharing in the spirit of the law.
3: That's great. And this whistleblower program that you mentioned as well, um, I know it's modeled after the SEC. And based on when SEC instituted their whistleblower program, um, reports increased. You know, there was more investigations, more uh, reporting on on what they thought was unethical behavior. So we'll see what happens now with this new whistleblower program for um, at the anti-money laundering industry, uh, world as, as we see it. And the fact, too, is that there's protection now, too. There, there, there's laws now enforcing no retaliation against those insiders that report this
4: information, which is good to see. Right, and just very quickly, we'll say, you know, under the text of the law, it allows uh, rewards to whistleblowers up to 30%, uh, but it's discretionary. And we hope mm-hmm. that in the implementation of this law, uh you know and ideally that it's made permanent that it is guaranteed uh that they will receive an award up to that amount but right now unfortunately it is up to treasury's discretion about you know how much of that if any goes to the whistleblower
3: yeah because prior to that it really wasn't funded so if if there's an enforcement action that results in civil monetary penalties then you know now it becomes funded through that penalty so we shall see uh, OK, so then what's what's next? I know we've touched lightly on the rulemaking process, um, but, Erica, I know, can you share some of the timelines that we should be aware of?
5: Sure, absolutely. So we mentioned that the next step is running this through the administration. Uh, you know, we're a couple of days after inauguration and we're just looking forward to get this rolling as much as, po- as quickly as possible uh, by law. Uh, The administration has one year to implement this from the passage of the legislation legislation. So from January 1st, Um, Treasury has indicated to us a little bit that this is a quick timeline, but all the more important that we get the right people in place, um, you know, nominated at Treasury uh, to carry it out. And it looks like that's already underway. Uh, Treasury nominee Janet Yellen. Uh, said in her testimony on Tuesday in the Senate Finance Committee that this would be a top priority for her and her department in in standing up this beneficial ownership directory. So what will happen next is that Treasury's uh, Financial Crimes Enforcement Network, FinCEN, will get input from the Department of Justice and Homeland Security on uh, working out what the actual uh, regulatory proposal will be. And then they'll issue that for a public rulemaking um, to get comments and uh, just solicit outside support. That period is usually about 60 to 90 days. They'll do that at least once, maybe uh, maybe a couple more times, and then hopefully um, we can see that process wrapped up by January of 2022. And you know, most importantly, I think that um, you know, in the legislation, Finn said did get a little extra uh, appropriated money and uh, a little extra hiring authority to help make that happen. So. You know, it is a quick process, but once the rules are implemented, um, you know it'll it'll come through, and we'll start having new companies reporting. And then, as uh, Scott mentioned, it'll be another two years before existing companies are are finally required to start issuing um, those reports as
3: well. Great. And then Scott, I know that you said, you know, we, we discussed this, but as we stated, companies, even financial institutions, um, anybody that is affected by this needs to start planning now on on implementing this. But do they wait till the the rules are finalized by FinCEN?
4: Um, you know, I think it's it's wise, and I know that a lot of um, you know, folks who are regulated entities have been following this process very closely. And, you know, as Erica mentioned, a lot of them have been supportive of the, the legislation that came out of this. Um, yeah, I mean, it, I think it always be wise to make preparations knowing that um, when these rules are adopted That's within a year, uh, that you know, their clients and affected industries and whatnot be able to meet the letter of the law and that they can expect, you know, Treasury to robustly um, interpret the Corporate Transparency Act in order to carry out, um, you know, not only the text of the the bill, but the spirit of the legislation as well. So um, we would imagine that that, you know, this we know this has already created a lot of ripples uh, Positive ripples in the in the community and affected industries, and I imagine that folks are are gearing up to see what comes next from FinCEN and to make preparations to make sure they're compliant with the law.
3: This is all great information and a lot to look forward to, hopefully to, you know, assist a lot of the financial institutions. And I hope the companies that are affected by this reporting don't think it's a burden on them. That is just hopefully just another form to fill out and and file with FinCEN. But it's a lot to think about. But I think we're looking in a positive direction in changes to identifying uh beneficial ownership, and battling corruption that's occurring globally. So with that said, um, thank you, Scott and Erica, for providing your insightful information. And we look forward to see, you know, what's on the horizon as the final rules come out. And now if the audience would like to reach out to you, what is the best way to contact you?
4: Uh, so, our organization—we uh, are the U.S. office of Transparency International. Our website is us.transparency.org. You can also follow us on Twitter at, at @transparencyusa. And then, if folks want to reach out to me directly, uh, my email address is s.greytak. So it's s.g.r.e.y.t.a.k at transparency.org.
5: Likewise, um, if you're interested in following up with uh, the Fact Coalition, you can reach us at our website. So that's going to be the factcoalition.org. On Twitter, we're at Fact Coalition. And if you want to email me directly, you can reach me at eHanicek, that's E H A N I C H A K at thefactcoalition.org.
3: Well, Scott and Erica, thanks again. And then to you, our audience, thank you for joining us on this episode of Corruption, Crime, and Compliance. So stay safe and healthy out there and make it a great day, everyone.
2: Thanks again for listening to Corruption, Crime, and Compliance. Please subscribe to the podcast series. The Volkov Law Group believes that every company should have a robust ethics and compliance program. Experience and research show that ethical companies are better performers in the global marketplace. You can learn more about the legal and compliance services we offer at our website, www.volkovlaw.com. You can also follow our award-winning blog, Corruption, Crime, and Compliance, and our podcast series. You can contact Michael Volkov at his email address, mvolkov at volkovlaw.com.
0: Eyes wide, the chance won't come again. And don't speak too soon, for the wheel's still in spin. And there's no telling who that it's naming. Was the loser now?